we're seeing daily evidence of um, anonymous disruption of the planetary life systems uh, that, that we depend on resulting from human activity. I want to talk about our place in the natural world, the estrangement that we feel, a feeling of distance and conflict between humans and the rest of nature. I think most of us here consider ourselves environmentalists. We love and want to save the forests, rivers, the wilderness. When we say the environment or the natural world, we use these terms to distinguish it from ourselves and the world as managed and modified by us humans. There's often a satisfying feeling of beauty and balance in a landscape that has developed without human intervention. We call it wilderness and go to it for renewal, rest, and restoration. Some people say that without wild nature, we would die of loneliness, and there has to be some truth to that. I know people live for months in submarines and space stations without dying, but I also know that patients recover from surgery faster if they can see trees outside their hospital window and that walking in the woods is an almost guaranteed mood enhancer. My friend Michael Stusser of Osmosis Spa is in Japan now studying their practice of forest bathing. Basically, mindful walking in the woods, to offer, and, and Michael is planning to offer that along with other excellent self-care treatments uh, available at Osmosis Spa in Freestone. Just the phrase itself, forest bathing, uh, <clears throat> gives me a feeling of calming, grounding, and rejuvenation. Many human cultures have myth themes that refer to an idyllic Garden of Eden, uh, a time in our deep past when we lived in harmony with the other beings in a landscape that supplied all our needs only to lose our place there through some transgression or other, making us feel like exiles uh, at best or orphans worse. Many cultures remember a mythical time when we spoke with the other animals. Talking animals in children's stories, cartoons, and fairy tales may be a, a, just, a, a vestige of that memory for us. How to understand this rift that has developed between us and the other beings? It's not enough to dismiss it as delusion. We need to examine and understand it in order to see our appropriate place in the planetary family. Did the estrangement happen when we learned to hunt with sticks and fire? giving us a heavy advantage over the other animals and, uh, and the other animals stopped speaking to us. Was this separation an inevitable result of our overdeveloped nervous system of self-awareness and awareness of our mortality? Maybe it happened when gradually speech became 
abstracted from the natural world it symbolized. Symbols became more important to us than sensations, and the alphabet was invented. Did it come about when we imagined ourselves different and superior to the other forms of life in some fundamental way, learned to control other animals and, and chose their mates for them, gradually breeding them to dependence, making ourselves into slave masters in the process. We created religions based on the idea of human exceptionalism, which reflected and reinforced that notion. Some explained our feeling of estrangement by imagining an omnipotent, vindictive deity who cast us out of his garden for disobedience. Many of us came to accept the idea that only humans have a divine soul and that all the other forms of life are soulless biomechanisms who may be owned as property to serve human purposes. These ideas have deep roots that are reinforced not only by mainstream religious organizations, but are made into a cultural orthodoxy by our capitalist economic system through control of commerce, media, education, and government. Occasionally, this dominant paradigm is challenged. One challenge came in the 60s and 70s and has developed into a loose social movement called deep ecology, the premise of deep ecology is that humans are fundamentally made of the same earth as all the other forms of life, with no legitimate claim to superiority or right of domination over the rest of nature. Human supremacy is seen as cut from the same faulty template as male supremacy and white supremacy. It was from the deep ecology writers, many of them Buddhists, that we get the notion of re-inhabitation, the importance of place to human well-being. The root of the word ecology, echo, is home, so study of home place. We also got from them the political importance of ecological relationships to place such as bioregions, watersheds, the food chain, and upstream, downstream, and the idea that those relationships would eventually replace borders and boundaries based on power and property relationships. Here in Northern California, there were human settlements that were occupied uninterruptedly for thousands of years. Our ancestors lived here so lightly and well integrated into the ecological communities they inhabited that when the Spaniards came, they thought it was all wilderness. In fact, the native Californians had been tending the landscape for centuries without tilling the soil, just by encouraging the plants that were helpful to them and discouraging others. You could call it tending the wild, and I learned something about that with blackberries where I leave, live, tending them to increase accessibility and yield. 
One example is of our ancestors tending the wild was their well-timed burns, which fostered their predator relationship with deer, making open meadows for more deer and easier hunting. They also modified stream beds to make pools for easier fishing. Some lo local groups made seasonal trips up to the Sierras every summer following traditional trails, greeting the familiar trees, rocks, and meadows along the way by name, according the other forms of life, the dignity of personhood. We evolved this way of collaborative interaction with the landscape over millennia, uh, and we co-evolved uh, doing that into the humans that we are today, so it's in our DNA. We want to feel that we belong as if we were born here and are entirely at home here. I don't think this desire is uniquely human, it may be an urge that we share with flocking birds, schooling fish, perhaps with social insects, certainly with herding land animals like sheep and deer. As social animals, it's part of our life strategy for survival and comfort. But for us humans, the urge seems uniquely troublesome. We may be alone among all the other animals in our tendency to feel lonely even in a crowd. We may be the only ones who are subject to that deep feeling of existential isolation that leads us to imagine that we are not really of this earth, but children of some transcendental god or of alien visitors from some far-off star. I have to talk about this because of the enormous suffering that results from it and because our Zen tradition has a strong and effective approach to it. That approach is to see into the nature of the self as conditional, fluid, impermanent, and connected to absolutely everything else. To realize through practice the basic Buddha nature underlying all our illusions of separation. Eihei Dogen, one of the founders of our lineage of Buddhism, observed that all beings sing the Dharma. The grasses and trees, walls, fences, and pebbles, all the 10,000 things. This marked a dramatic expansion of inclusion compared to earlier Buddhist formulations that included only sentient beings and sometimes uh, living, living beings as if there are others beings who are not living. Uh, and, you know, that dividing line is, um, has shifted and been debated throughout the history of Buddhism, I'm sure. But <clears throat> the idea of sentient beings are those whose experience of sensation was more similar to and familiar to humans. I guess there's always been that kind of debate about who is sentient and who is not. Other animals, as far as we know, though they show a strong will to avoid danger, pain, and death, 
don't seem to take death of the self as the kind of profound existential defeat that we humans often do. We want to re-inhabit the world. We want to re-inhabit our families. We want to see and be seen by our children and parents as loving allies, not as interlopers from some strange planet. We want to speak and be spoken to with patience and respect. We want to drop the defensiveness, the fear, the stranger danger, the separation that makes us always an outsider. We want to belong in the larger human community. We want a civic landscape where there is mutual respect and participation, where we are not objectified sexually, racially, or commercially, but meet in the public square as valued citizens. We want public servants who really serve the public, not just the wealthy and powerful. We want to put down the burden of exile and return to the embrace of these Northern California coastal mountains, no matter where we may have come here from. We long to know all the beings who live here in our home place, the plants, the animals, the insects, the microbes, the rocks, the rivers, the meadows, and mountains. We want to know them as family. We want to know them by name. To know them through the seasons, their colors and smells, their customs, their response to sun and rain, the same as we want to know each other. We want to re-inhabit our gardens to eat the plants that grow here and offer themselves to us. And as we want to re-inhabit our place, we want to re-inhabit our time. We must work together to reclaim time as our sacred commons. Time is not money. Time is not a commodity. It's not to be appropriated for the benefit of one class over another. It is the fabric of life itself and of the story we make together. It belongs to us all, as does the earth, the sky, the sun, and the water. If some of this rings true for you, and you'd like to explore this project of reawakening to your place in the community of all beings, of repairing the rift of human supremacy, I offer a modest invitation. My wife and I live on four acres near Occidental. There are paths and gardens all over it. Parts of it are tended heavily and parts of it hardly at all. I want to make this land available for people to come and sit still, to listen and learn from the other forms of life, and to see themselves as an emissary seeking alliance and connection rather than domination and control. We'll keep the number small so as not to unduly alarm the foxes and the quail and other wildlife. This is the beginning format. We'll gather at my house at 4 p.m. Thursday afternoons, beginning next Thursday, October the 12th. 
will go out and find a sit spot and sit still there for 30 or 40 minutes in an attitude of open, alert listening. Then we'll return to the house for some readings, presentation, or exercises, tea, and sharing. If you'd like to take part, please call or email me and I'll save you a place. The format will be modified as we um, have experience with it and um, trying, it, trying this format out in a systematic way. In addition to the resources of the place, we may call upon people with special experience for help. Megan Waller-Murphy is a wildlife prof professional, a teacher, and an expert tracker. She knows the languages of some of the languages of birds and insects and will help us to learn to hear them. Our own Charlie Fisher is a former professor and longtime student of the relationship of Buddhist practice to wilderness. He's the author of the excellent book Meditation in the Wild on Buddhism's origin in the heart of nature and has graciously agreed to share time with us. That book's available in the library. So here's some good news. You are already a natural-born inhabitant of this one miraculous universe where there is nothing extra, nothing lacking. You always have been, you always will be. Everything came from it, everything returns to it. As every rock has a history, every atom and particle of your body has a long and venerable story. I've talked about this before, but it's so exciting to me, I have to keep going back to it. Just think about this. All the cells in our bodies change. Some of them change fairly quickly. They say very little of the material present in your body now will remain after seven years. The greater part of it will have been replaced and renewed. Red blood cells, which take on and transport oxygen as we breathe, last about four months. Skin cells, about 28 days. Let's think about teeth, up close and personal. <laughs> Probably one of the long, longest lasting parts of you. Imagine the life story of one atom of calcium in one of your teeth. Maybe it was deposited there when you were a teenager after you ate a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> Say it came to the cheese from a cow who grazed on a pasture near Bodega. That particular clump of grass that the cow ate had taken the calcium up from an owl pellet dropped there a hundred years ago by a great horned owl. It may have come to the owl from a gopher who had been eating a lupin root, who had taken that lupin root up from an that who had taken that calcium up from an ancient limestone deposit in the um, ancient seabed that um, became the main soil type of West Marin. It came to the limestone from a tiny marine clam, to this clam from the seawater, 
to the seawater from the Earth's crusty mantle or from the runoff from our mountains. And it came to the uh, mantle from outer space as the planet condensed and attracted space dust left over from that great bloom of star stuff that became our sun. What an incredible, fast and adventure, uh, vast adventure for just that one calcium atom in only one of your teeth and for only the last four and a half billion years of a much longer, deeper story. Then consider that there are 10 to 100 trillion cells in your body, each cell consisting of 10 to 100 trillion atoms, each with a similar history. Is that enough earthly experience to consider yourself a native earthling? <laughs> Some other time, let's talk about all this, uh, about all the microbiota which live on and within the human body and which outnumber human cells by a factor of 10 to 1. When we recite the line in the Bodhisattva vows, Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. That's who we're talking about. This is the great Maha Sangha of all beings. To me, it's very liberating to see this Buddha nature in the smallest particle. It means that everything is alive and a part of the same thusness as we are. It means we may be free of that limiting belief of ourselves as the center of the universe and the unique, exceptional carriers of soul. It means the Dharma is at all times around us in everything we encounter. It's in the fox, and it's in the quail, and it's in the meadow where they meet. It's in the sun and in the rain. It's in the crow vocalizing on the hillside surrounded by quivering leaves and grasses like the assembly of monks that surrounded Sakyamuni Buddha to hear the Dharma 2,500 years ago. So with the incredibly vast and unique history that has coalesced temporarily, provisionally, conditionally around you, I want to bow to you Native Earthling, congratulations, welcome home, and what a pleasure it is to be neighbors with you and to practice this Buddha way together. I want to offer yet again that old Mary Oliver favorite poem um, about the wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Despair? Tell me about it, yours, and I'll tell you mine. But meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, 
over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear, clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So put all this on your cushion. Sit with this numberless multitude of the greater Sangha of all beings. And if you can still, still find that one within that feels alone and lonely, it's okay. Don't worry. This Buddha way is not only boundlessly fast, but boundlessly patient. <laughs> 